All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to, I think this is episode 88 of Going Live with Good Soil. Every Tuesday, the same time, same place, Matt and I are doing these live streams of the weekly kind of financial news and Tesla news. It used to be mostly like all Tesla stuff. And then over time, it's, and on some other stocks we cover, and over time, it's evolved into like, you know, a lot of macro news. Instead of like five or 10 minutes of macro, today we'll probably spend, a, you know, half the show or, or more on the macro stuff. Um, so yeah, we're live on Twitter spaces and our YouTube channel at the same time. It's recorded for anyone who wants to listen later. Sometimes listening to us at one and a half speed is more efficient use of your time than uh full, you know, normal speeds. I, that's what I find. So Matt, how are you doing? A lot to talk about today, right? Yeah, we do have a, a full plate. You know, the Silicon Valley bank saga was, you know, really, um, like a, a rapidly, uh, progressing story over the weekend and, and into early this week. And then we had CPI this morning too. So a lot to get into, you know, full disclosure, I probably only slept like two hours last night. My kids are all sick and my wife. So if I'm mm. a little bit out of it, that's the re reason why, but I'll yeah. uh, pull through as much as I can. I had a good amount of coffee this morning. <laughs> okay. Matt, you're going to love getting sleep again one day. It's just, hopefully it's around the corner for you. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like we're going backwards on that front. So yeah, eventually I know it'll, it'll turn, but you know, my yeah. youngest is a year and I'm like, I feel like we shouldn't be having these issues right now. But. Yeah. By the time he's two years old, hopefully you'll be out in the, out of the worst of it. We'll I guess time will, you got six kids. So you just, you know, one of them's probably always having nightmares or sick, keeping you guys up. Yeah. yeah. So first let's head headline. The first thing is the February CPI. It came in about as expected, I think, right? Uh, 0.4 month over month and 0.5 month over month, right? For the core CPI and the uh, consumer CPI, I guess. So what were your thoughts on that, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, the, the market certainly digested it as good information. Um, you know, I think the, the most um, telling thing for me is that 70% of the increase in the um, in the, the CPI number was actually related to the shelter, uh, which we've talked about many times on here, how the shelter component of CPI, one, it's just a very large component of the overall CPI index, but two, it's got the, um, uh, it, it's incredibly lagging as an mm. indicator. We, we've talked about, you know, the uh, OER, the owner's equivalent rent, how that, you know, is a, is a lagging figure that kind of averages in over 12 months or so. So I think that the kind of increase that we saw, which accounts for 70% of the, of the, uh, of the number is really related to what happened in, in months past. So, mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a little frustrating, I think, to where people are still going to be talking about, Oh, the, the actual number is so high, you know, like it should be close to zero or like 0.1% on a monthly basis. And the fact that it's not, you know, may look bad. And, and I've seen some commentators even say the fed clearly has work still to go. Cause look at this, it's still sticky. Um, <laughs> but I think when you look at what was actually driving it, uh, this will very clearly reverse itself at, at some point once the data kind of um, stops um, being so laggy or, or starts uh, getting onto, onto better comps. So I don't know. Those, those were kind of my thoughts. What, what did you think of the numbers, Emmett? Yeah, I didn't I didn't have a chance to dive into them this morning uh, as much as you. Um, I basically am digesting the market's digestion of, of, uh, of it. And like you said, uh, you know, the numbers came in sort of as expected. I think that helps the markets because the fed can be less conflicted, um, when they are gonna, I, we, I think keep rates the same, um, in this upcoming meeting, because if the, if the CPI was hotter than expected, like again, or surprisingly hot, 
then it would be very conflicting for the Fed to, you know, decide what to do here in the midst of this, you know, quasi systemic banking risk crisis and uh, inflation hotter than expected. What do they do then? Right. So we'll talk about that in a second, what the Fed we think is going to do. But um, let's move on to kind of the Silicon Valley bank saga. Right. I mean, everyone's been digesting it. Um, everyone's been talking. It's been all the news of podcasts and Twitter. Now, now, first thing I wanted to say is we talked in our notes yesterday. We we're talking about. I know this is one of the questions we'd come up with. Is, what What do you think would happen? Um, you know, Twitter is the best place for up to date info. What What do you think would have happened with the Silicon Valley uh, banking crisis? And how do you think this could have played out if there was no Twitter and no like daily or weekly podcast? It was just like the normal mainstream media news cycles going on. Do you think this would have been different or, or how do you think this would have played out? Yeah, this, this is, you know, kind of interesting. It was uh, something when you and I were talking yesterday, Emmett, in our, you know, normal weekly meeting, I uh, like I was telling you how I was trying to get updates on this and I was like checking Wall Street Journal and New York Times and they, all their stories were about what happened the day prior at best. Yeah. So then like you go on Twitter and it's like by far the best information, like up to the minute, everything that Yellen is saying. And so um, it was just kind of eye opening to me to like, see something like this, which was so important for for markets and, and to just see how bad, <laughs> you know, the traditional outlets are uh, as like a, um, a timely purveyor of, of information. But I think, you know, that also um, this kind of new age that we're in, we we're talking about this yesterday, also kind of plays into um, like Fed policy. We're not the only ones that are, you know, privy to like the the rapid rate of, of information. So, you know, the All mm -hmm. In podcast had a fantastic episode that dropped, I think it was Saturday morning. And they yeah. essentially said something has to be done before the markets open on Sunday. And if not, like all hell is going to break loose. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think a lot of people were echoing that. I mean, that was certainly my view as well. And we can we can dig into the, the why if, if yeah. it makes sense in a little and bit. And Bill but, Ackman uh, and other mm -hmm. financial people on Twitter having like spaces with 20,000 people listening. I'm sure some of those people are connected to influence or, or like policymakers and such. Yeah, but go on. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just thinking back to, to 08 is, is the best proxy for this situation, right? Where, you know, you yes. had the... Yeah, layman failed, and and you know, there was you know at that time like it was very clear that the the, um, the federal government needed to step in to kind of stem systemic risk. Um, you know, my my memory of that is a little bit hazy, but I, I'm almost positive that it, they didn't move anywhere near as quickly as they did in this instance. And so yeah. I, I think it's actually been a good thing to kind of like reinforce like there, it seemed like there was pretty widespread consensus, at least among yes. people who knew what they were talking about, that yeah. like. You can wipe out the equity holders, the investors. That's completely fine and probably appropriate. Yeah. Uh, but you can't wipe out the creditors because that just you'll lose faith in the whole banking system. And so the fact that they were able to, you know, pull this off with only like I think Friday afternoon is like the only wires that were impacted out of Silicon Valley Bank, and then by Monday morning, everyone had their full deposits available. Um, yeah. And that so like that speed of reaction, I think I think all the podcasts and everything did play a role in in kind of pushing the speed that the the government acted in. Yeah, absolutely. I think if there was no Twitter and no like daily, weekly podcasts that are widely being distributed, you know, I think uh, if it was just left up to the mainstream media, it would be late, like you said, even a few days late. And the markets would be crashing a lot more yesterday yeah. and even today. <laughs> and there'd be like an emergency, you know, cut of rates and like backstop announced tonight or something, you know, it would be like a middle yeah. midweek crash of 
10% of the market. I think it would have been much worse potentially. Like all the regional banks would basically have gone under by now instead of just the top, you know, the three of them so far. So I think, yeah. I think the fact that you have Twitter on the flip side, it also encourages, you know, faster information dissemination for bank runs to happen, you know? And I think that's okay. Yeah, that's a stress that's test. You know, that's a stress test that should be, um, warranted on every bank. I mean, every bank should be prepared for a potential, you know, there's people calling for like, oh, anyone who's talking about bank runs should be looked at by the FBI or SEC or something like that. And I think that's- Oh, really? I haven't haven't seen much of that. Like bank runs- Yeah, there's been some calls for that. Or not conspiracy, like anyone who's talked of potential bank runs or encouraged it on social media should be, you know, looked at closely by the SEC or something like that. Like as if like, you know- we should be policing our speech about the, you know, uh, possibility of a bank going under and you need to just get your money out. You know, like, I don't know how you, it's just, it seems like over, you know, it's just the, the censorship kind of creeps back in there. And I'm like, I don't think that's the right tactic to use is like try to tell people not to yell fire in a, in a, uh, in in a movie theater that's actually on fire possibly, you know? Like, so, um, yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's such an interesting point because if the bank is fine, you know, then they should have all the liquidity needed to handle, you know, a run. Now, yeah. you know, it can cause permanent damage. I mean, we've seen First Republic, you know, which did not have nearly the kind of issues that, that Silicon Valley Bank has. And their stock is down. I didn't check this morning, but as of yesterday, they were down 75% or so in a week. And mm-hmm. I'm sure deposits are flying out of there like crazy too. Now they've mm-hmm. they've got um, they they I think they handled the situation a lot better and and it doesn't seem like they had the nearly the level of systemic risk that that Silicon Valley Bank had, um, but like I think it's it's prudent like you shouldn't if if there actually are issues then people should be trying to get their money out I mean that's just the only natural thing to do and the, and the other thing which we haven't talked about yet is in this environment where if, if you've got say a million dollars just sitting in the bank. And treasuries are offer, you know, yeah, short-term treasuries are offering, you know, three, four percent interest. Five percent, yeah, five percent interest. Why would you be sitting earning, you know, twenty-five bips on on your, you know, <laughs> savings account on a mil- like? Yeah. That's just that's just kind of dumb cash management. So I think yeah. people should shouldn't be leaving large sums of money that they don't need, you know, kind of above and beyond their their working capital levels that they need to just kind of pay their bills on a monthly basis. Um, anything above that, they really should be managing and yeah. you shouldn't be sitting in a bank. Yeah. I mean, it, there's a lot of people just asleep at the wheel with their cash balances in their bank. You know, people that are just not even following the financial markets remotely, whether it's like small business owners or a wealthy family that's just living their life in other ways, whatever. Like they're probably just letting their cash sit there, assuming they're getting what they're supposed to be getting and their banks kind of running away with it. So, I mean, the, ultimately, let's the Fed rate hikes up to what it's what's happened. You know, it's it's finally like it's finally broken something, right? I mean, w- everyone knew sooner or later, the Fed can't just rate, raise hikes in, in, infinitely. At some point, it's going to break something, right? I mean, whether the mm-hmm. Fed raises, ma- imagine if the Fed raised interest rates to 50%, 5-0. Imagine, I mean, how much would that break? It would break like so many things, right? So we're at 5% or 6%, whatever, and it's it's breaking things, okay? So I think I think the Fed understands this. And and it, it now, now with these banks going under, and you could say the regulators were asleep at the wheel, like the FDIC. I have a friend, you know, that used to work there and I was talking to him briefly and he was just saying like, there's, and I listened to an interesting segment on Bloomberg radio this morning by a guy talking about it, but the, the regulators at the FDIC, they're conflicted agents, you know, they're kind of like, 
wussies they, because you know <laughs> wussies. They, they, well they're not not only are they probably not the most some of them are probably competent but some of them aren't because they don't pay very well you know you have to be there for yeah. x amount of years before you get a good you know payout and if you're not there for the first, most people good people leave within a year or two or something so they don't have a lot of they've, they don't have a lot of great you know people sticking around um, but more importantly, I think there's like competition from other regulators. So from what I understand is the FDIC is like the regulator of some of these regional banks. But if the FDIC, FDIC is getting a little tough on them or asking them too much of them, then the, the banks will threaten the FDIC and say, I'm not going to use you as my regular. I'm just going to go to the Federal Reserve or so, there's some other regulators they can use apparently instead of the FDIC. I didn't know that. But like the big banks don't use the FDIC. I think they use like the federal, they use another regulator that covers them from a regulatory perspective. So the FDIC has to sort of placate these regional banks in some way. And so they're conflicted in some ways in that respect. So, hmm. you know, it's not a perfect system by any means. And so I think um, it, it, you can tell because now there's this huge loophole that's been exposed of the held to maturity securities, which is, you know, mortgage-backed securities is a big part of that or these long dated treasuries and, you know, that that's the crux of the issue right now, we think, right? I mean, these these held, quote unquote, held to maturity securities, which are not being marked to market. It's ridiculous, yeah. right? I mean, which I, I, I would love just a little one minute rant on how stupid this, you know, the, these accounting rules are. You know, yeah. we, we've talked about the, the accounting rules uh, as it relates to Tesla. I, I think most people are like, remember the whole Bitcoin debacle, like, oh, you know, Bitcoin's going to get marked down. And so that's going to hurt Tesla's earnings and what, whatever it was, you know. Q2 of last year and Q3, I think it was, there, there were these, these impairments. And so, you know, the accounting rules for crypto and for several other assets are that, you know, you kind of hold them at book value, but then if they go down below the value that you, you bought them at, then you mark them down, but you can never mm -hmm. mark them back up, which yeah. is kind of silly. It's like, these are very yeah. liquid assets. It's very easy to just mark them to market all the time. If you yeah. own equities on your balance sheet, you always mark those to market, whether it's up or down, which is something that yeah. Warren Buffett complains about because it creates these wild swings. But treasuries, for whatever reason, the accounting rules, even though all three of these asset classes are completely liquid and you could very easily mark them to market, the treasuries just stay on the book value, stay on the balance sheet at your acquisition cost. So, you know, these these 10 year treasuries that Silicon Valley Bank was holding when interest rates were, you know, two percent got crushed as as the fed jacked up rates and so you know their their actual care like their fair value was significantly lower than than their book value and so yeah. to me it's just it's like the like why are these three different asset classes treated differently from an accounting perspective it makes zero sense and so i think some accounting reform among how these are are um, related on the balance sheet is is very much due i think i think there's there's no point when when you have liquid assets, why not just mark them all to market every single month? It's otherwise yeah. you get like hidden issues like this that people have to go or around, every day go around when you 10Q can. For. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are trading every day somewhere on the market. I mean, they're liquid that and enough. So yeah, I think uh, they need to be marked to market, and that just makes complete sense. I don't know why they wouldn't be. Um, and, and what's crazy is even though they're trading for seventy five cents on the dollar, you know, if you held them to maturity, you're going to get the the full 
you know, amount back or what, you know, the bond's going to pay back, you know, the yeah. full amount, but because interest rates have gone up so much, they're actually trading now at like 75 cents to the dollar because, you know, getting yeah. 2% bond, you know, coupons, instead, you could get like 6% or 7% coupons on these MBS security, mortgage backed securities, for example, on new ones, you know, so, or, or treasuries, you can get 5% instead of 2% or whatever. So, um, so they're trading on 75 cents on the dollar, but they can still borrow like against a hundred percent of the value. They don't borrow against 75%. And that's also the crux of the issue. And so the, these, uh, inside the balance sheet of these, and, and, and the thing is, it's not like one person is in charge of the entire Silicon Valley balance sheet. You know, you have, yeah. you have compartments, you have one person in charge of, you know, handling, you know, the uh, coupon payment receivements expected for another person in charge of this, another person in charge, of, and they're all within their own little tunnels. And they don't really, there's not very good cohesion of all of them coming together to understand the big picture until something like this happens. Then people put the pieces of the puzzle together, like, oh, we all maximized our own job. And now we have, you know, this big yeah. blow up. I mean, I would say like a, a, a large bank like Silicon Valley should have had better risk management. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's even though you're right, there are kind of separate departments that are managing this. The CFO ultimately has, you know, uh, overall responsibility for kind of ensuring that their balance sheet is robust in a variety of situations. And it was not an unforeseeable outcome that that you might have rising interest rates. Um, and so they they kind of uh, well they they very clearly had um, you know duration mismatch between their their deposits and and these treasuries. So they ended up having to offload them at a at a significant loss to, to book value, which created this this you know funding gap that they had. Mm -hmm. So you know it, it's you're right, but I also think it like they very it's not like the Fed is the only issue here. Like they, they very clearly could have managed their risk better than they did. Yeah, yeah, no, they could have. Um, and I I saw on Twitter over the weekend that like their global risk management officer um, left the firm at the end of last year and they haven't replaced that position since or something. So uh, that's not a good situation. Yeah. No, yeah, maybe they no. left because they saw the writing on the wall and like, I'm getting out of here before things blow up. <laughs> yeah. And like, and then there's reports of like the CEO and the CFO selling stock in the last few weeks before this all happened. So yeah. That doesn't wasn't look the good CFO either. like in Lehman in 07 too, I think. Lehman. Yeah. Like the CFO was like the head of Lehman. <laughs> there's all kinds of weird connections people are making, you know, that's all on the fringe. I don't know what, how much of that is legitimately concerning or just coincidental. I don't know, but uh things to keep an eye on for sure. Um, but the other banks, you know, the Silicon Valley bank is not the only one doing this. You I can, I can almost guarantee, like we went to a conference with uh capital allocators like a year. I've been to a number of these financial conferences when I was at my previous role in sales at interactive brokers, you know, mostly for like other things, but there's conferences for regional banks to go to and talk to each other. Yeah. You know, the, the, the risk management people are the people operating. And I guess, you know, I, I can almost guarantee they're sharing their quote unquote secret sauce of like maximizing the return of their balance sheet. And others have been doing the same thing. Maybe not quite as aggressively as Silicon Valley in combine, combination with their venture debt portfolio that, you know, we'll talk about in a second, but I'm sure other regional banks have been doing the same thing. And they're held to maturities <laughs> are really hurt, hurt and bad, and they're going to be exposed shortly. And, you know, I think there's rumors of not only like other regional banks going down soon, but even Credit Suisse, if Credit Suisse defaults and goes down, like that would be massive. That's like a huge yeah. global investment, wealth management bank 
you know, entity, you know, does a lot of things. So, you know, this is not done. This is this, this, this systemic, this is sort of a quasi systemic risk. I say quasi, because I don't think it affects the quote unquote, too big to fail banks so much because they've been so much more, they've had such huger capital ratios imposed on them. There's so much more capital, better capitalized supposedly, um, you know, but the stocks, you can see the stock market hasn't, you know, shorts stocks haven't lost faith in JP Morgan or, you know, banks like that, you know, so I think it's more the regional banks and uh, I guess Credit Suisse has maybe something similar or different going on, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, they also, I think, I think the, um, like the downside risk with the JP Morgans of the world is that like <laughs> they're, they're in the too big to fail category. So if something mm-hmm. like this happened, the government would a hundred percent step in to, to yeah. prevent contagion. And so that's like where you've got a kind of this two tiered system, which is a little bit unfortunate because a lot of the depositors that are, you know, fleeing, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank and the smaller regional banks, they're going to these, you know, like top four banks, you know, Bank of America, JP Morgan, you know, a couple others. And it's it's like you're kind of um, putting all your eggs in the same bat in the same. Wells you know, Fargo basket. and Citibank. Yeah. Well, yeah, Far- I think those other two, maybe there's one more. But anyway, go yeah, on, I mean, yeah. Bank of America, I think, is, is uh, yeah. large. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just it's like we're, we're kind of concentrating again it, and, and I think there is some benefit to having like smaller regional banks instead of just like this uh, oligopoly of like a few big winners. Uh, but yeah. it seems like that's at least for the U.S. financial system, kind of the uh, the track that we're on for concentrating power. Um, yeah, it's, you know, kind of unfortunate because I think we we said it's like the same issue that we had in, you know, 07, 08. I think you just had like these banks that kind of knew there's the what, what, somebody had the, this this phrase for it, that there's this. Um, implied uh put that like the government will never let the banks like go below a certain level because they'll just step in and bail them out and so yeah uh, you know that was like a trade that worked out really well during the financial crisis yeah yeah i remember that and uh i mean the the i guess the one thing is like what if the federal government's like defaulting on the u.s dollar at the same in a major crisis and it, it can't it actually, you know, it, for whatever reason, will not prop up a, a too big to fail bank. You know, there could be some foreseen issue, like like everyone assuming the too big to fail banks will never, will always be saved. I think that's a, it's it's a it's it's an assumption, and um, assumptions can sometimes yeah. be wrong. So you just never know. You know, you just always need to be on top of where you keep your assets. Kind of, you know, it seems like the best option right now. The too big to fail banks. Um, I love interactive brokers personally. How they manage their mm-hmm. risk. Um, you know. And how they manage their balance sheet, but uh, you know, yeah, Pe- doesn't that play these games. It's been no, he, it's mostly his wealth and his own. You know, yes, yeah, so he doesn't play these games. That's right. You know, the other thing um, which has kind of surprised me. I mean, I, I got a lot more um, bearish on on uh, crypto in general as an asset class over the last you know year or so. Just all the scams and like just like yeah. outright fraud that occurred yeah. in the space. But if you, yeah. if you look at like the actual decentralized chains, like you know, uh, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. Um, like there have been margin calls on those and a lot of people have just been wiped out automatically, but like the chain keeps on moving and and it's actually proven very robust to wild swings up and down. So, you know, my, my view on, on crypto has actually improved a little bit when you, when you just compare what those, you know, one or two main chains are able to do uh, in terms of like automatically liquidating collateral and just very orderly processing these, these swings up and down compared to, you know, banking, whatever, whether you're looking at big banks, small banks, regional banks, it's all based on this, like, you know, fractional reserve, um, 
system where they're taking your your deposits and then loaning them out. So they're they're introducing some amount of risk in order to generate a higher return mm -hmm. in order to pay their bills and get a little bit of income. So, you know, I do think that there's a, a systemic difference there that I'm thinking actually makes crypto look at least, you know, Ethereum and, and Bitcoin look a little bit better by comparison, uh, at least yeah. better than I thought they were maybe six months ago. The decentralization aspect seems to you know show strength here in this in these times i feel like yep um so i, I mean a long way from mainstream there but it's, well, uh, i think it, it, yeah. could, it could go well yeah it's good insurance i still think of bitcoin as sort of like insurance to the entire uh, fiat system you know and, and the government fiat system um so i mean i guess we should move on a little bit and the fed what are they what are they going to do next i mean the, the the metaphor i think of is like uh, there's this metaphor um, called the fool in the shower. I think Milton Friedman coined that term. And it's sort of like, uh, you know, if you go into like an old shower and you turn it on at first and you, you you turn it all the way up and you go in and you just kind of, you don't really understand how it works, but you go in, it's like freezing and, it's, and you turn it all the way up and it's freezing. And it takes a long time and you're like, ah, and then it gets super hot after a while. And you're like, whoa, and you turn it all the way down and then you're like still hot. So you keep turning it more down. And you don't realize it takes a while to take effect. And you just keep going back and forth, flip-flopping, you know, because you never quite realize that there's a delayed reaction to this stuff. And and mm -hmm. sort of like that's sort of what the Fed has does with, with interest rates going up and down. And um, I guess what I would uh, add to this metaphor with what's going on right now is the Fed has been turning up the shower all like all the way with interest rates, how fast it's, you know, turn up the shower really fast, not understanding that the cold water takes a little while to get warm. And in the midst of it getting warm here, um, this pipes are rattling now and they're leaking. And so I was like, oh, crap, the pipes are rattling. I better stop turning it up. And that's basically like Silicon Valley, Signature Bank and, and uh, you know, Silvergate, you know, going bust. And they realize if they keep turning it up, then maybe the whole pipe could explode and the whole, you know, the plumbing, this old plumbing, you know, the system would be all, all screwed up. And so I think that's why the Fed is going to, really quickly, if not pivot to cut rates, we'll just pause. Um, because yeah. it, 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 what's the downside if the Fed raises rates 25 basis points? I mean, they were expected to raise like 50 basis points. And then most people yeah. are saying, oh, 25, like it's like a 70% chance or 60% chance it's going to be 25. I don't even think 25 basis points. Like what's the downside? You got to think about the personal incentives of Powell and the Fed, right? If Powell raises the rates 25 basis points, the upside is, okay, look, I'm showing I'm fighting inflation still, just not as strongly as I otherwise would have, you know, given what's going on. But it looks like it's like marginally helps a tiny bit, maybe inflation fighting just 25 more basis points. You know, that's a tiny bit compared to where we're at now. But if they raise it 20, what's the worst that happens if they raise it 25 basis? If there is a 25 basis points and then the next collapse, banking collapses start happening like within the weeks after that, and it's also more held to maturities like interest rate just on the fringe, things going bust, then it looks terrible to Powell. You know, Powell and the Fed, they look like one of them, they look like they totally don't understand the plumbing of the US financial system. And this is, that's, yeah. they, they let the systemic risk run rampant by raising the rates even further. You know, so I think they are afraid they will cover their ass and be afraid of that scenario. And for that reason, pause, if not lower rates. But I think they'll probably pause. Um, and I think Goldman Sachs put a note they expect them to pause. 
Nomura put out a note saying they expect them. And we talked about this other week. Like you don't follow just one, you know, these are all anecdotal, but Goldman Sachs yeah. is like, you know, they're always usually, they, they seem to be right more than wrong. Nomura's also in that group, but there, you know, a lot of um, investment banks think they're still going to raise 25 basis when the fed futures think they're going to raise 25 basis points by like 60% probability or, or something. But, you know, I think they're going to pause or even lower rates if a few more banks fail between now and next week when they have their meeting. What, what are your thoughts on this, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I th- you teed it up perfectly, Emmett. I mean, it's just, this almost gives them like the perfect excuse to, to stop their behavior. I mean, um, it was not even a week ago, last Wednesday, Powell was testifying before Congress and, and he basically said that he didn't see any systemic risk uh, to the economy or to the banking sector based on on their their rate hikes. Well, like that story lost credibility on Thursday and like completely fell apart on Friday, where, yeah. you know, as a pretty much a direct result of the aggressive rate hike policy, uh, three banks failed. So mm-hmm. like you that alone, I, I think, can be reason to pause, if nothing else. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, Gary Black was uh, he, he sent a message, I think, that like they the. SEC very clear or not sorry not the SEC my the um the Fed cares like a thousand times more about like the banking sector than they do about like stock prices so yeah. like as the market crash like they don't really care that much but if like the plumbing of America's like financial payment system starts failing and is at risk as a result of their actions that's like a massive red flag way more yeah. than you know like falling asset like like stock prices are yeah and no um, fed chairman wants to be you know on the <laughs> uh, on the job when that happens that's like the ultimate yeah. failure if you're the fed chairman on the job when the bank when the banking system fails and uh, you know that's like you'll go down in history books as like the worst Fed yeah. chairman ever, you know, you, you would much rather have like 5% inflation for another year than to have yeah. that. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. So when you're weighing yeah. your options, it's like, uh, all right, yeah. like, you know, there's a, there's a greater evil here and that's that the entire banking system fails. So I think I, I, I personally think a pause would be like fantastic news. I'm not sure. I'm kind of leaning more towards 25 basis points, to be honest with you, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't surprise me at all if they just pause uh, in, at the next meeting, which if you asked me a week ago, I'd say that there's like a less than 1% chance that, that they would pause. So yeah, um, yeah. this is either way. I think it's, it's really good news. And this may give them the kind of perfect off ramp to, to kind of change behavior. And, and I was texting you over the weekend that this whole Silicon Valley bank, you know, failure may actually be like the best possible thing for, you know, equities in a, in a kind of roundabout way. Cause it may prompt like a, a changing stock. of behavior in Tesla to too. Surely. Yeah, which I mean, and just as a, an anecdote for maybe people who aren't watching this as closely, you know, last week when we were talking, the the ten year Treasury uh, was just under four percent. I mean, it was you know like three point nine seven percent or so. Now it's down to three point six one five percent, which is you know like the lowest level it's been since uh, February, um, like, like a month, I guess. But it just it did that in like two days time. Um, yeah. So so you know. You know, if you're using that as a as a you know um, risk-free rate to, to price growth assets, and then you know having that drop, you know, 40 bips has a pretty big impact on on valuation for growth stocks. And so, if that trend continues, where the 10-year keeps uh, inching down, then that's very good news. Yeah, and what's also, I mean, 
the, the data point, like you said, is he, he in their statements previously, the Fed statements is like they don't see systemic risk. Well, they can't put that statement in yeah, their, Fed, right. their Fed language anymore. So you have to assume they're going to take that statement out, which is a big statement. If you, they're going to actually reverse it. Instead of they don't see systemic risk, they're going to have to reverse it and say, we see possibility for systemic risk. And if they're putting that yeah. statement in their Fed statement, how can they also be raising rates at the same time? I, in my view, yeah. I don't think that's it's, possible. It's, if anything, they're going to lower rates, but I think they keep it the same. But I think they should lower it, really. But it's it's gone the, the the way of uh, transitory inflation. Like that's just like that statement has lost all credibility, right? Yes. It's, yeah, <laughs> there is something changed. They have to acknowledge it, and it's not only like these. Like they have to accept the new reality of social media calling them out if they make a mistake as well, like real time, like with the information, like we were talking about earlier, like they would not have reacted so quickly. We think if the Twitter was not a thing, if daily weekly updated news podcasting wasn't a thing, they probably would not have reacted as quickly as they did by putting this all in place Sunday before the Asian markets opened and everything. So I think, um, they they know they're in a new age. Not only can bank runs happen much quicker, but they're also going to be held closer to accountability on following what's really going on because everyone's getting real-time information on this stuff and spreading it much quicker than the mainstream media normally has in the past, which has had a couple of days lag on everything in the past, right? So yeah, this is, I think, new good news for if you own equities and especially if you own growth growth stocks i mean um you know they've been hit so hard with interest rates going up you know the discount rate which is what's used to value a lot of growth stocks has been hurting us all greatly and our, you know we talk a lot about growth stocks the stocks we all invest in are you know we don't talk about buying gm or caterpillar we talk about we talk about buying the the stocks of the, what we think are the stocks of the future which are considered the growth stocks and so with interest rates coming down, we should hopefully see a nice positive bounce in a lot of these. None of this is investment advice, but I, this rally today that we're seeing, you know, even, you know, it, it, the NASDAQ is up 2%. It feels like the most muted rally. I don't know. The, 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 um, the uh, sentiment I've gotten this morning from watching the news and even last night, listening to lots of interviews with different people, the news, this guy, Mike Wilson, who everyone thinks is like some special guy at Morgan Stanley. I don't even know who this guy, Mike Wilson. I just see his name quoted on every financial news. Have you heard his name? Morgan Stanley, like global head of investing. No, I don't know I, what I he haven't. is, but he's being quoted on CNBC, Bloomberg, all the mainstream financial news pieces that I listen to just to get an idea of what the sentiment is in the mainstream financial news media. But he's always quoted. He's like, sell on any, any, you should sell the mar bear market lows are not in yet. Any strength in stocks, you should sell like blah, blah, blah. So the sentiment, what I'm getting at is the sentiment does not feel, it feels like the most muted or the worst it has for a, a rally I've ever seen. Like we're up 2% yeah. today, but everyone thinks it's feeling like half the people still think the sky is falling or, and like the mark car marks about to hit new lows, you know? So I feel like that's yeah. a great time to be long in a way. Like when, when the markets are going up and everyone thinks that they're about to crash again and everyone's convinced it's about to crash again, that's the time you want to be contrarian in my view. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just feels like wrong, but right. You know, it's yeah. just one of those times going against the grain. You know, I mean, I mean, just like as a, an anecdote, look at uh, uh, Rocket Lab and, and Lemonade. Uh, now, there was a little bit of concern because Rocket Lab had money at Silicon Valley Bank. But like those concerns are completely ameliorated with the uh, FDIC stepping in and the Treasury stepping in on, on Sunday night. Um, but like since this thing, whole thing has happened and the treasury rate, you know, dropped 40 basis points, like I said, 
um, like these stocks are still down over the past five day, you know, period, which yeah. makes zero sense in my name, in my mind. Uh, you know, Tesla and, and um, Roblox have rallied. Uh, but like the, the rally, like you said, it's like the most muted rally, <laughs> which yeah. for something as seismic as I think this really is like to me, this is like a very clear pivot point in, yeah. in Fed policy. Yeah. Uh, like, of course, can CPI remain sticky and, you know, can things uh, get worse? Of course. Um, but to me, it's like this seems like an inflection point where we're not in the same world this week that we were in last week. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it just seems the perfect, uh, you know, none of this is investment advice. That's the disclaimer we put at the start of the YouTube channel. We should always, we should mention that verbally on the start of these uh, spaces as well, because people don't see the disclaimer visually like they do on the YouTube channel. But the, it, it, it just feels like, yeah, when the market is rebounding, when when it's had its lows and it's going to rebound, no one knows it. Everyone thinks the market's going to go yeah. lower, you know, whether it was COVID, think about all the past crashes, you know, like, no one thinks the market's about to go up, you know, X percent when you look back historically when those things happen. It's usually and the opposite is true, too. You know, when people think the market's going to keep going up to new highs, you know, that's when it crashes, you know. So it just feels like one of those times. Um, so I hope it's the, the, the right time um, the, the next week. If the Fed was to keep rates flat, if, even if, if it stays the same way, let's say if. if still 60% chance the Fed futures think they're going to raise 25 basis points. But then they come out and they say, we're going to keep rates flat for the, at least the next, you know, until the next meeting, just to see what happens. I think the market could react very violently on the upside and all the shorts are covering, you know, it just, it could be like, I saw some metrics by spot gamma that it's like the most put buying yesterday and today than they've seen like ever in a long time or something on single stocks. Really? Put buying? Yeah. That's, that's yeah, surprising. So, all these puts are going to, you know, expire and the gamma, you know, the, you know, the, uh, they'll, they'll all like fade or decay. The, and, you know, that, that would make sense if, if like some folks like us are, are thinking the market goes long here and other people are going really heavy on puts, then you've got a Delta hedge that. And so a lot of yeah. the, the market makers might be going long or might be, uh, yeah, going, going short. Um, yeah. So maybe those those kind of trades are offsetting. But when you get to expiration, were, were these shorter dated puts, Emmett? Uh, I don't recall the specifics, but I think it was like monthly or yeah. you know, puts or something, just quarterly or monthly, you know, probably the popular, not like weekly. I would imagine. Yeah, so. I mean, it's it seems like if if the market even just stays flat and and all those puts expire, then like that alone would create upward pressure on in the market. So yeah, yeah, I don't know. It, it could be a really interesting volatile month ahead of us. Yeah, or could we could be, be wrong and maybe the market goes down for me. <laughs> yeah, it's not of investment. Course, people who go long here. What if the market? Whatever, all the puts or buyers are right and the market crashes, you know, twenty percent again. <laughs> so I don't know. So. um but there's no risk, no reward. That's what they say, right? And this feels like a, a risk opportune time to me. Uh, so Tesla, let's move on to Tesla. Everyone listens to us for Tesla. We've talked a lot about this stuff. Is there anything else macro you want to touch on or can we just- No, I, th I think we, we've gone on long enough about there, but it's it's probably the first time in a long time that I'm actually feeling pretty optimistic about macro. You know, the, the economy yeah. has actually weathered the storm better than I thought it would. And so, you know, if mm -hmm. inflation gets tamed a little bit and there's not too much kind of uh, like collateral damage to the economy, then we, we might be okay. I still think there is a yeah. pretty significant risk of a recession, but from where we are today, uh, the economic data seems like it's reasonably strong. Yeah, yeah. So Tesla, the big news is the China weekly insurance numbers. That's the biggest, big latest news. I mean, there's other big news, 
but the latest uh, news, I think, is the insurance numbers, right? And, and that came in at like 17,000 or something, 17, yeah, 17,000 and change. I think it was, uh, I wish I had a up, I think it was about 12,000 last week, which was, yes, a little bit weak. It was, you know, stronger than it had been the week prior. Um, but you know, I, I for one had been pretty concerned about, uh, you know, demand in China. We, we talked last week, I think, about you know, Tom Zhu's comments about demand being so strong in China seeming to be at odds with the weekly registration data. Uh, yeah. But now with this data point, it, it seems like Model 3 in particular, I think was up like 100% week over, uh, yeah, week over week. So um, the price so, cuts are really taking effect now, basically. Yeah. Getting deliveries. Yeah. That seems to be the case. And then, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, obviously there was the, the shutdown for Chinese New Year, but then there was another shutdown uh, for Spring Festival in February. So you actually had like a pretty sustained period of, of shutdowns. And, you know, we... You, um, are, are we are we free to talk about the email that you sent to our our friend? By the way, I'm not sure if we want yeah. to talk out of school. We can. Well, we have a uh, you know some contacts on the ground in mainland China that we find are reputable, and uh, we asked them for some you know talking not talking points, but just like opinions on like what's the China economy like there? Is it was Tesla week? And um, you know the gist was that like the other automakers, the competitors are really in trouble. But Tesla's in good, good position, you know, the, the yeah. uh, and that last month was the, some that that festival and the first time in like three years where, you know, Chinese mainland Chinese people were free to travel as they wanted and go visit their homes or whatever. So there's a lot less people in showrooms and orders yeah. and deliveries taking place last month. So that's potentially why. Delivery seems not as strong as as otherwise for February, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe the the piece that I had missed when I was thinking about China previously was like I I thought about the you know festival and Chinese New Year as impacting production, but also that there's just people who have been you know working or or haven't been traveling for the last three years because of all these COVID restrictions and and concerns. Um, like they're finally home with their families, and so they had an extended Spring Festival and Chinese New Year. Yeah. Um, and so like showroom <laughs> traffic just in general has, has been down. So what we saw with, with this week's data is that pretty much all the Chinese automakers were down, but Ch Tesla was actually up. I think it was like 11, 12%, something like that, uh, week over week. Maybe it was even, I think it was actually higher than that. It, um, I think the model Y was, was up about that much, but the overall number was a lot higher. So, yeah. so if, if that is actually true, then demand for the Tesla, Tesla, Tesla's is relatively a lot stronger than the other brands. Uh, which didn't seem to be the case. I mean, with with the other data points that we had so far this year, BYD was looking like the like like the the uh, you know twenty five or uh, five hundred pound gorilla in, in the room. And so for Tesla to actually start taking a little bit of share this week was, I think, a really good sign. Yeah, and there was like reports of potential shenanigans that I haven't seen dispelled with BYD in terms of like double counting its sales numbers. Did you see that? Like they sell to like no, some dealers who then resell it to consumers so they can double count the sales or something. So there was some weird potential shenanigans going on with BID I saw being tweeted about that I hadn't seen dispelled by anyone, but there's not really a huge BYD bull, um, you know, audience on Twitter, you know, actively dispelling things like the BYD Tesla partnership that was rumored to be soured, you know, just, yeah. you know, 24 hours ago, then Elon had to dispel it, you know? So you, you, you don't know, you got to take everything with a grain of salt, negative or positive on BYD, what you hear, I guess. So, Yeah. Taylor Rogan was the the BYD fan, but I haven't been following him too closely lately, to be honest with no, you. <laughs> no, no. Um, 
So, I mean, I think if you had to guess, like, well, next week, maybe we'll go into more projections of what we think the quarter might be. But I mean, what do you think for deliveries for, I, I, you know, my over under, what's your over under your 50, 50 over under for Tesla deliveries globally for, you know, we're only like two weeks away, a little more than two weeks away from yeah. the end of the end of the month so yeah you, you know i mean last week i probably would have said maybe like 410 or something because i was just very concerned about everything but mm -hmm. I'd, I'd probably say 425 right now seems seems like a reasonable number um okay. and, I, and i think they could actually even beat that you know if they've got a strong yeah if, if they actually have something of a wave uh which it looks like they they might but the the other thing we hadn't touched on is the european inventory numbers have been really steadily down for a while and those have been elevated and seemed like they weren't going anywhere so uh, the fact that we're in the final you know month of the quarter and the, those european inventories are finally starting to really get soaked up uh that's that's really good news uh in my mind as well um yeah so yeah i, I think 425 is probably my you know over under that's that's where i'd set the line where are you right now uh i'd say 430 is my over under I, I just saw in the comments, and I'm seeing in Twitter, Twitter's the best place, is that there was a U.S. Uh, drone just struck a Russian airplane this morning. Um, and oh, good. Uh, yeah, so the market's, I guess, getting wind of this right now. And that's why we're seeing a little bit of a tank in everything uh, at the moment as we're talking. You know, if I was a day trader, I'd be like shorting things right now. But, you know, it's uh, a little scary um, if the Russia-U.S you know, start fighting directly because of some accident like this, you know, like that's not good. That's why the market's panicking here. So my, my hope is that this is like the Silicon Valley bank of the geopolitical world. It's like the one accident that forces everybody to be like, hey, stop. Okay. Like let's, yeah. let's back off from this. So it didn't crash the plane apparently, uh, or maybe it did. It, I, I'm being, I'm seeing uh, that the Russian SU 27 suffered unknown damage and landed at an airbase in Crimea. So it landed it can't be that bad, hopefully, but uh, this is not good. I mean, we got to, th this is the escalation, the accidental escalation of a US Russia direct, you know, global World War Three against each other that I think everyone's afraid of. This is the elephant in the room. And um, I just can't wait. The, these elections, this new election cycle can't come fast enough where candidates will have to talk about this and, and they'll know that the voters do not want this war to be escalated. They want peace. You know, there are still some people that want, you know, to, to put their foot on the neck of Russia and just do everything, throw everything militarily at them. But I think the majority of the American people just want peace and don't want this war to go on and want peace to be uh, negotiated. So, uh, you know, in this new election cycle, it needs to come sooner because that's when we can get, you know, mainstream media to talk more about it. And politicians will have to, these politicians will have to talk more about it to stay in favor with whatever voting contingent they're trying to get. So yeah, and I think public yeah. sentiment is, is really against any kind of like further intervention or escalation in, in Ukraine. Yeah. So um, I think it'd be hard to, you know, push for, you know, a more aggressive uh, position here, even if, you know, that's what the, uh, yeah. you know, military industrial complex wants. Yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, this early reporting is conflicting. The market seems to believe it enough to, to, to tank, you know, quick, you know, 1% in like five minutes, you know, that usually doesn't happen unless there's some kind of new big macro market news going on that everyone's, you know, talking about. So, uh, yeah, yeah. apparently, uh, NATO's talking about it too. So there is something to it. We just don't know the full story yet. Um, anyway, <laughs> hopefully next week we could be talking about Russia 
U.S. fighting instead of uh, Silicon Valley bank collapse, you know, so it could be a whole new macro market discussion. Oh, I, I sincerely hope not. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. All right. Anything else with Tesla? Should we go to Q&A? Anything else you want to touch on there? No. I, so I did upgrade my internet. I saw several comments. Melody from uh, from YouTube said uh, that I look really good, but then she amended that to clear, not good. And, and Farzad noted how uh, the new internet really highlighted just how ugly I am. So I'm glad the internet is working better for the video on YouTube. And But uh, apologies yeah. that that results in everyone seeing my face a little bit more clearly. Oh, I think it's good. I think it's good. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was not... getting bad. So I'm, I'm glad we finally fixed that issue. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's go to Q and a here. <clears throat> um, so yeah, anyone, uh, we'll, we'll ask the questions here and anyone questions, they can certainly type them in and we'll, we'll go to them, uh, as many as we can, I guess the next, you know, 10 minutes, we kind of went on for a while and all the other stuff. So just type in your questions and we'll get to them, you know, right away. So wasn't rocket from Martin Muldoon and the YouTube comments, wasn't rocket lab supposed to have two launches this week? One is not on the radar anymore. Uh, I think I think one was postponed due to weather in Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I don't I don't think that was uh, a huge surprise. But um, yeah, I mean Martin's been on top of this. The the launch cadence is not I think what we had been hoping it would be this year for Rocket Lab. So hopefully they'll, they'll get that turned around. Um, I'm not sure that it, it was rescheduled either. So um, did you see the relativity space attempt? You did you watch? Yeah. You keep up with that. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I watched it, you know, it, they got to like a minute and then they scrubbed it. Well, at first they and held it. Didn't they try again a few it. days later? Didn't they try again a few days later and scrub it again? Or did I watch, did I, or did I see someone's just like YouTube report of it? That said I that. only saw the one, I think it was like last Thursday. Maybe it was even Friday. Um, yeah. I, I, so I didn't, I didn't see it after that. Um, I think that was their only launch window. I think their next launch window is like two or three weeks. If I'm not mistaken. I think it was like toward the end of March. So, yeah. um, okay. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, but that's another, you know, they had an issue. I think it was with their, what did they say? It was like with their O2 something. So like there was some parameter that wasn't quite right when they were about a minute out from launch. So they had to, you know, put it on hold and then they eventually scrubbed it. So, oh, Nick's corner. I like Nick, by the way. He's on, I think he's on Farzad's channel sometimes. Nick is saying, uh, there's two scrub attempts, one last week and one on Saturday. Yeah, that's what I thought. There's one on Saturday too, I thought that was scrubbed, scrubbed twice. This is, uh, the, 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 the space, uh, what Chamath says is the next space competitor to SpaceX, which Matt and I wildly disagree with that Rocket Lab is the next competitor to SpaceX. And Chamath doesn't even seem to recognize Rocket Lab as existing or something. Yeah. You know, he, he's very focused on energy right now. I don't think he really understands what's going on in, in the space sector. I mean, he was yeah. pushing Virgin Galactic and like that whole business oh, yeah. model is just, I could be wrong here, but that business model just looks like total crap to me. I don't, yeah. I don't well, think in retrospect, it does. I mean, I could see how like three or four years ago, someone might've thought Virgin Galactic's going to be at the forefront, but they, you know, they're not innovating in any way where they can send rocket, you know, they can send things to lower earth orbit in any way, shape or form. So yeah, I think and it's easy to say it's, now. For sure. It's, it's like, like a more expensive tourist thing that already has one fatality on their books. And yeah. it's, it's just like a rickety piece of, uh, you know, like it, it's, it seems to me it's like what the, they were doing in like the 1950s when they were testing these supersonic jets at high altitude. It's like, yeah, those were like amazing machines that failed a lot and were like dangerous. 
you like you want something that's a little bit less exciting if you're going to do space tourism, honestly, and and frankly, one that gets into you know low Earth orbit, not just you know you, where where you can see the curvature of the Earth. So I can get off my yeah. soapbox about that, but to me, that the okay. whole model just doesn't make any sense. Okay, let's go to the next question here. From Carl Branco on YouTube, is it a stretch to believe tier one institutions are not well suited for unicorn startups in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, or more likely VCs got special perks for driving the massive SVP deal flows? I don't think that's a stretch. I think um, tier one institutions uh, like JP Morgan and uh, Citibank or Bank of America they are not good for small businesses in my experience, especially startups or anything crypto related, for example, you know, they, they're just super overzealous on regulations. They're super regulated, you know, out the wazoo. So like anything with the word crypto in it, they stay away from, I feel like their their compliance people are, you know, crazy and, 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 you know, so, so all that stuff flows to the regional banks, which are more, not, I wouldn't say more lenient, they're just more realistic and not, not super crazy with, with compliance regulatory stuff, you know? So I would say for that reason, you have a lot of the VCs working, uh, having good relationships with the regional banks. Um, you know, when you get to a certain size, like a billion dollar company unicorn, then maybe you can go, you know, to the bigger banks, but anything, you know, that's not, you know, you know, gigantic in size already, I feel is probably uh, going to bank with Silicon Valley Bank or First Republic or, you know, some of these regional banks. Um, I don't know, Matt, you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of on, on your page about this. I mean, you know, I, I think the, they, there's not like a, the special perks that, that they're t talking about. I think, you know, part of that was like maybe the, the access to the, to the like the venture debt part of the business, which they they probably shouldn't have been doing in the first place. To be honest no, with you, they shouldn't have. Um, so like that part of it, like let's just get rid of that. But I think the the broader question is like, is there a place for these these regional banks? And I think there absolutely is. And just from maybe I can just share like an anecdote or two from my own experience uh, on the energy side. So with, I was managing this large wind farm in Ohio, and we used one of the large tier ones. And it was like every time I had to do anything with the banks or like we had a, like a special situation, um, you know, I'd be like, hey, like, can we just like do this? And they would like insist on like getting legal counsel and like writing an amendment. And it was just like a huge pain for things that were truly like a non-issue. But they just like were really it was like a CYA attitude. Uh, but then I was working with another smaller um, uh, power plant out of North Carolina and we we're using a regional bank there. And we had a like situation one year when I was there where like we had a, the plant was down for a lot longer than expected and had a lot like higher uh, operating expenses and maintenance expenses to replace some issues. Um, but they were able to like put a line of credit in place relatively easily because we had this longstanding relationship with these bankers and, you know, they, they kind of understood how unusual this was and, you know, we can just talk to them and, you know, go and sit in their office. And it was just kind of like night and day, the kind of service and the understanding and like the relationships between these regional banks. And then like, the large ones where you're just like this anonymous client that, you know, like all they care about is making sure that you don't risk up their portfolio. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's absolutely a place in the economy for these regional banks. And, uh, I think it's, it's, a, I just, I hope this doesn't, uh, cause too much damage within that space. Yeah. 
Next question comes from Harry Chu in YouTube comments. Question, Musk says demand is a function of price. What price do you expect for Cybertruck in 2023-24 and thoughts on Cybertruck demand? Matthew Donegan Ryan is like a new on the scene. I ca- I'm going to call him the Cybertruck Whisperer. I think that's his... Uh, I'm gonna, I'm <laughs> and gonna, the Tom Zhu Whisperer too. Yeah, Tom Zhu. Yeah, he, he's got a lot of... He talked to Tom Zhu, but... You know, instead of like, you know, what, what's the guy, uh, the dog whisperer, that channel, you know, he coined that term. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, I'm going to call that show. Matthew Donegan, <laughs> tr- Ryan, the uh, the Cybertruck whisperer, because he uh, he he understands pickup trucks. He he's driven like five F-150 Raptors. He's he used to work at a Ford uh, dealership for a dealership. few years, yeah. selling F-150s for several years. So he understands the market. He's had 13 Teslas. I mean, that's a lot. Of, this guy's had more Teslas than me. I didn't know anyone had more. I had like, I was counting them in my hand, the head the other day. It's like, I had seven Teslas over the last 10 years. I've rotated in and out. So he's had more than me. So he understands the pickup truck market. He understands Tesla very well. He said some, he has a new channel on, on the scene and he's going over Cybertruck stuff. He, he was at the investor day. And if you haven't listened to his his findings on the cyber trucker is just what he's found out about it. You should, he's got great. And for the pricing, I think he, he suggested it, what he thinks likely the pricing to be. Uh, I can't remember offhand. I think it was like 59,000 um, starting price up to 79,000 for like the tri motor. So that's still within the 80,000 uh, price mark um, with, for the, for the IRA subsidies. So I think that seems about right. Um, maybe a 59,000 starting price now. I think it used to be 39,000 starting price, but inflation and, you know, the other competitor F-150s and all the other competitor pickup trucks have all gone up like 10 or 20,000 in starting prices since then three years ago too. So it would make sense for the cyber truck to go up to like 59,000 as a starting price for the base model, which will be a dual motor. Um, so uh, yeah, that seems to be what I think the starting price will be. What do you, what do you think about demand? Are you in the uh, oh <laughs> in the Adam Jonas camp that fifty thousand a year is a good target for Cybertruck? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think I think that's way off. I mean, that guy Adam Jonas and I saw Drew Dixon tweet like, oh, even when uh, the biggest bulls start saying you know negative things, you have to pay attention. Adam Jonas is not the biggest bull. No, no way. He's, he's the biggest flip flopper. He's the biggest flip flopper. He really, <laughs> he's like the fair weather fan. He's yeah. hilarious. And, yeah. and he's always like off the mark. It's like, he's like focused on some very tangential part of Tesla's business. Like I remember a couple of years ago, he's talking about like how they're going to put Starlinks on all the Tesla cars. And that's, that's going like to happen. That will happen though, I think. I well, think but it's like, it, it was not at all relevant to Tesla's valuation. So why yeah. he was focusing on it in 2020, yeah. it just made no that's sense. That's the one feature I wish someone asked Franz and uh, Tom Zhu or some of the people at the Investor Day is Starlink going to be integrated into the Cybertruck or other Tesla cars soon, anytime soon. I haven't heard anyone say if they've asked but Tesla can, management can I ask, about that. I, I, I maybe disagree with you, and, I, and we'll get back to the core of the question in a second. <laughs> yeah. But given, you know, what, what uh, is it T-Mobile that's their partner now? Uh, yeah. With like the cell, like, couldn't they just do what T-Mobile does and like use some like iPhone type, you know, connection yeah. to, to access Starlink and a lot cheaper than actually having like a dish on your on your truck? Yeah, they, they, I think they could use the same technology, but this technology, my understanding is it takes a unique type of signaling from only certain satellites that have the capability and space to provide that signaling. And right now the capacity is very low, so it can only be used once in a while. And it's really, you know, not sporadically, it can't be used by like hundreds of thousands of people at once, for example. It's really meant for like 
emergency, you know, use case only. If you're stuck in, in, you know, the wilderness or something, then those people can turn it on and use it. And it's, 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 maybe it's more, it's not like the data flow is not as strong. It's more for like texting and not really for like voice calls or anything like that, yeah. you know, for example. So that's my understanding is sort of like rudimentary so far, but it yeah. seems like it could grow to be something more substantial to me. I would, I would, you know, but maybe there's some hard limitation where it's never going to get beyond that type of use case. I'm not sure. So, yeah. So, so what, uh, back, back to the, the question, what, where do you think demand ends up? Like once they're ramped, I don't know, call it 2026 or something like that. How many cyber trucks a year do you think they're doing? Over a million globally. A million. Okay. Yeah. Probably 500,000 at least in the U S um, maybe even up to a million in the U S but somewhere in that range. But I think globally over a million between one and 1.5 million globally is my guess. You know, it, maybe it's 2027, maybe 2027 will be ramped up to then. But, you know, it, they'll ramp up to that capacity to a million plus for sure in the cyber truck per year in my mind. Didn't, didn't Matthew say that there weren't plans to go international with it right now in one of his videos? He might have, but and that's probably the plan initially because it's going to take a few years to ramp up just to the U.S. Yeah, demand, right? But at some point, five hundred thousand orders they need to work through. Yeah, or they have over a million orders right now, but maybe half of them take delivery in the in the U.S. Yeah. or whatever. So, yeah, I mean the U.S. and Canada, and then you have Central America. You know, so um, I think uh, once they get you know five hundred thousand plus in North America then I think they have plans to expand internationally. There's like a, a, a cult of people in China that want the cyber truck. You know, I think we talked about that with uh, our, our contact on the ground in China. <laughs> it's like, yeah. there's like people all over the world that want the cyber truck. It's not just the U S uh, you know, I, I so. saw a Hummer on the road in China, uh, probably Oh seven. And mm -hmm. it was like the most jarring thing. It was like, this person clearly wants and is getting attention. Cause you know, there's all these little small cars and then there's yeah, like yeah, yeah. beast of a vehicle and it's yeah. like hard to park anywhere, but yeah, it's like, yeah, that's, I, I it could, could become see... a status symbol because it's such yeah. a different form factor that you might have like really wealthy people in Hong Kong or China or middle East or Europe, even, I don't know, but you might have really wealthy people buy in North America and ship it to their country and make it like a, almost like a, like it'll be very expensive to do that. And, you know, you have to get past whatever road regulation to make sure, you know, you're allowed to do that legally in that jurisdiction. But I could see that happening. It would be like expensive to do, but I could see some amount of people doing that. Yeah. So, all right, let's go to the next question from Matthew Herges on the YouTube comments. Does Peter Thiel have any SEC exposure for being vocal about pulling money out of SVP? I don't that is Silicon Valley Bank. I don't think he should, but there are calls we were talking about earlier in the stream how there's some like journalists out there or people like you know in 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 social so, some people are saying that the people who were advocating for, you know, taking their money out of Silicon Valley Bank, uh you know, to you know, should uh, publicly should be looked at closely by the SEC, whatever that means, like should be fined or, you know, something make sure maybe make sure they're not short silicon valley bank maybe that's maybe that's a legitimate concern maybe you have to look at their statements and see if they like shorted a crap load of silicon valley bank because i didn't put a tweet out like is peter teal short silicon valley bank i wonder if he is because he was long that marijuana company i remember that went up like crazy with the short squeeze um uh, but you know i don't know if silicon valley bank if he had a personal position or not or if it's just like his own fund and founders that he works with 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, assuming he's not short, there's there's nothing to see here. I mean, he he's essentially acting as the as like a steward for all of his you know portfolio companies and and frank, frankly just you know friends who yeah had a lot to lose that like that is absolutely like the prudent thing to do and you even heard you know the, the guys on the all-in pod were telling all their portfolio companies to do the same um you know it, it's like that it's exactly the prisoner's dilemma like if you don't do that then you're going to be, be the one holding the bag if things go sideways so the best thing to yeah. do you know for your own interest is to get your money out of there until the storm is passed. Yeah. but yeah if they are short like if peter Thiel was short and then he was like you know crazing a creating a, a ruckus about that Maybe there's something to see there. I, I kind of sense I'm not a securities lawyer, but I kind of sense even then there's there's probably nothing nefarious. You know, it's not yeah. like he was spreading misinformation or anything like that. So to me, this seems like a almost certainly a non-issue. But, you know, granted, there could be holes in my knowledge base. Yeah. I mean, and there's also a difference whether he was short like before he started calling for versus like if someone shorted the stock after they realized the stock that, you know, and they told everyone the publicly they think they sh- and then they short it later just trying to make money that's i think different than shorting it like pre-planning to like cause a panic you know i feel like then that could be um yeah i don't even work. think that's illegal though is it because like, i don't is, think I mean, it isn't is that either. essentially what um you know the hindenburg research does like they're very yeah. short all their stuff and they know every time that's they publish true. a report it's going to cause a, a stock decline and you know it's yeah. like you can say that's a little sleazy maybe but it's not illegal i'm pretty sure yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So uh, let's do maybe one more question, maybe one or two more questions. Uh, let's do here from Stu on YouTube. Doesn't the U.S. government own Silicon Valley Bank now? Should we just nationalize banks that fail if we are providing 100% insurance? Yeah, I'm not sure what the ownership structure, if they're auctioning it off. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. I have to study up on that. I mean, I know the U.S. government, you know, sort of bailed them out. They didn't bail out the shareholders or the bondholders of Silicon Valley Bank. So it's not really a bailout per se. Um, it's more like they're helping the, they're backstopping the deposits. Um, so I think the U S government should backstop deposits for all, you know, banking depositors for sure. I don't think they should, you know, um, uh, nationalize banks. I'm not sure that that could mean a lot of different things, I guess. Um, so what do you think, man? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the crux of this question is, you know, are we socializing losses, but then privatizing the gains? Um, and, and I haven't looked into the details of this explicitly, but I, I did see uh, with Secretary Yellen's statement on Sunday night that the U.S. government was not on the hook for any losses whatsoever with, with this depositor insurance. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. sure exactly what the structure would would be that would enable that to be true. Um, but I know like, you know, with TARP, for example, um, you know, there there was more kind of risk that the, the government was taking, but they ended up making a profit on it. So it's in it's like same thing with the GM bailout. The government made a profit on it. A couple of these other things that appear to have gone well, um, or uh, like appear like they're a bad thing that like the the taxpayers are kind of on the hook for. In a lot of cases, it ends up working okay actually. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, like I'm not too worried about this to be honest with you. I agree with what you said, Emmett. Like we should not be bailing out the shareholders for sure. Like I, I think there's no problem at all letting like the the entity die. I, I know they yeah. are still looking at um, auctioning off the actual uh, entity itself, though. I think like the UK branch was sold to somebody for like one one pound. So um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, we'll we'll see where this ends up. Yeah. I, this story's not over yet, but to me, this is not like even if we ended up taking like a ten billion dollar loss as taxpayers or something like that. In my mind, that's both unlikely and a small price to pay for you know kind of avoiding contagion. 
Yeah. And let's do one more question I see from Ali Shekhabai. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name on YouTube comments. Question is, um, any thoughts on NHTSA investigation? Do you think they can suspend it and how it can impact Tesla stock? So this is something we've touched on a few times now, right? Uh, one thing we didn't touch on, actually, we should have touched on our Tesla notes is the new full self-driving yeah. uh, 11 version. That How did we miss the, that? All the beta testers have gotten, I think they got it all like Thursday, like the day or Wednesday or Thursday, last week, the day after. So it's been like a week since they've had it almost. So, but, but it is new since our last live stream for sure. And the reviews have all been very positive. Um, I've watched a number of videos on YouTube. It's like, instead of watching uh, just, you know, the latest Netflix series, I like to watch the latest, uh, you know, test drives by the beta testers of the newest versions of, of Tesla, of the Tesla full self-driving beta. And this one seems really good. I mean, it's not perfect yet, but it's, you know, much more close to perfect than it was in the past. And even the biggest critics of uh, FSD beta, those testers are still are raving about it. So, yeah. You know, part of me want like the, the the negative Nancy side of me is like, well, they're probably all just overexcited because it's been like six months since they've had an update, so they're just like harping on. But that's not that's not necessarily true because a lot of these people have been very critical of new updates, even when it's been a long time since they've received an update. I I remember in the past, a lot of them would like poo poo some of these updates, being like, oh, now I'm having problems here and there. But I haven't seen any of that really. Have you? No, I mean. You know, it's it's not perfect. I mean, I, I've been watched enough of the videos to say, like, th there were some people who were like, V11 is going to blow everyone's mind and it's going to be like two months of robo taxis or something like yeah. that. You know, it, it, it's definitely not that drastic of a step change. But what I think is really encouraging is for how massive of a change to the software this is, mm -hmm. um, the actual performance seems like it's probably like a couple steps forward and I was almost expecting like a couple steps backward, but maybe the rate of iteration increases from here. So, um, yeah, like Lisa Tesla truth, I think she's something like that is one is her handle. And she's like, she's been very critical of, of Tesla's FSD of like just saying it's way worse than people think it is. And, you know, ragging on like the Omars of the world who are, you know, talk about how great it is. And, she she put out a tweet, I think, over the weekend. It was like, Tesla's going to, if they want this version back, they're going to have to like claw it out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> it was something to that effect. So yeah. for someone who's been so critical to say like, this is like such a positive improvement, I think is, is a very good sign. Um, yeah. And, I, and I've seen a lot of the videos too, where it like handles very complicated situations, right? I know Dirty Tesla, he had one where like a guy kind of like shot out very quickly in front of in, like some parked cars and it just like hit the brakes very fast. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's better than I thought it would be, to be honest with you. And, uh, mm -hmm. once it goes into, into wide release, I, I have a feeling we'll, we'll see a, a increased kind of rate of iteration from here. So yeah. Yeah. That's I what I'm more so. excited about is the, the rate of iteration, not necessarily just the, the kind of current state of it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, some point this year, I really feel like the FSD beta tipping point happens where it's not going to be like level five suddenly, but it'll be so good that it'll pass the wife test and like lots of people will just want it and will pay up for that option. Instead of 10% right now in the US, maybe it'll be like 20%, then 30% the quarter after, then 40% of new buyers the quarter after. So we'll see, I think some point this year, we'll see the tipping point in that where word yeah. gets out and people more are willing to pay up to adopt it and take it on. So, yeah. And, and that's like, that's what gives me so much confidence about this, you know, 
investment in the, in the long term is that eventually that's going to happen. But like yeah. for modeling purposes, we basically assume that that never happens, and we're still yeah. saying that you know like there's, what is there's it a lot of upside. In, in, in the U.S. right now, it's like what ten percent or eight percent or six percent. I think it's like estimating fourteen or something like that. Oh, but 14%. then global. Okay, I, I I could be wrong on that, but in it's the US. definitely higher in the U.S. And then I think the global average is is more like eight or nine. Yeah. Um, well, they haven't turned it on in Europe or Asia yet, so people are just like buying a hope and a dream right now in those places. So I don't blame yeah. it being so low everywhere else. But in the U.S. is the real, I feel like. Uh, temperature to take on that, how successful it's becoming and passing that quote unquote wife test, you know? So, yeah, I feel like it's getting closer. I mean, I had an hour long drive over the weekend and it, you know, it was just, it handled all these, um, roundabouts perfectly. And it was just such a relaxing drive to not have to worry yeah. about the navigation. I was going to a place I wasn't very familiar with. And it's like, I think once in a, when it gets to the point where it passes the wife test, I think yeah. the natural thing for them to do then is to give like a 30 day free trial or something like that. Yeah. To yeah. Everybody. And then yeah. that will have like a huge impact on like fleet wide take rate. I think, you know, cause yeah. even if, you know, only 10% of the existing fleet at that point, you know, like opts to subscribe. Well, at 10% of 4 million, that's, you know, still 400,000 monthly subscribers at 200 bucks yeah. a month. Or something. Like it's, there's a huge amount of potential here. And so I think whenever we get to the point where it seems like we've, kind of hit that inflection of passing the wipe test. I think that's uh, going to be very, very good news for the company's financials. Yeah. Maybe six passing months the after wipe that. Test and the not driving like a jerk test. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the two things. Yeah. I think it's safe. It's very safe. I'm, I'm yep. very impressed with the safety statistics, but it just has to pass the wipe test and not drive like a jerk test. Those are the two tests it has to pass now. Yeah. 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 And I've like, I've gotten to the point where I just hit the accelerator a lot. Cause I know. Yeah. I can me too. Especially when like, it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't want to like, signs or intersections. Yeah, exactly. And you know, just avoid being a jerk and like, that's all you have to do. And, and it's such yeah. a better driving experience. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. It's been an hour and, you know, an hour and 15 minutes. We went over a little longer than usual, but a uh, great chat, Matt, as usual. And uh, we'll be on next week. Hopefully um, there won't be any new crisis we have to talk about too long. Hopefully we'll talk about the Fed, uh, you know, pausing rates and as opposed to raising them still. And uh, maybe Tesla will be, you know, back on the move up again. Who knows? So, yeah, that would be good. Uh, yeah. Definitely looking forward to a little turnaround here. It'd be uh, welcome news for sure. Yeah. And hey, by the way, Rocket Lab is with, uh, in, I mean, not Rocket Lab, Roblox is within $10 of its 52 week high. It feels like striking this. <laughs> All right. That's, yeah. that's pretty good accomplishment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's 52 guys, 53, but it's all time high was like 130. So it's got a while to get to there, but it feels yeah, like for our uh, portfolio companies, that's a, <laughs> that, that's a good yeah. sign. Yeah. A relative yeah. winner. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.